Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. You say... 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Slumber Party Massacre 3 is over. Hey, we didn't know you'd be dancing around naked. Summertime. And the only thing the girls of Malibu Beach need is good music, good friends, and guys. So, what's it worth to you? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, a guy like that is just the kind of guy we need at the party tonight. They just invited the wrong guy. Began the most terrifying horror series of the decade. Now, the Driller Killer's back. Slumber Party Massacre, Part 3. All right, Andy, what, <laughs> what the hell with this movie? First off, let's just uh, say for everybody, this one, for some reason is much more difficult to find than parts one and part two. Right. Um, this film had been released on a Blu-ray set with part two and a DVD as well, um, but they they went very quickly uh, out of print for some particular reason. Shout Factory had released them. And uh, now Shout Factory, I guess, is doing a, a 4K restoration of parts one and two. But again, Nothing said for part three. So it's very strange. I'm not exactly sure why. In fact, for this, for the purposes of our episode here, we ended up finding this at uh, Scarecrow Video up in Seattle where they do have that rent by mail program and they, they have the, the disc with parts two and three on it and we were able to rent it to watch it that way. But otherwise, it is very tricky to watch. And so we understand if people have not uh, found it. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully you'll enjoy our conversation. And, you know, if you want to check out Scarecrow Video and rent it from them, um, it's very handy. It's a very handy way to get some of these things that are otherwise hard to come by. But, you know, I mean, really, it's like full house, but with more drilling. <laughs> so it feels so weird. But think about, like, why is this one hard to find when, in comparison to the other two, it's like, it's not like it's you know, extra offensive. It's not like there's something in it that would keep them from wanting to release it. It's a, a lot of the same stuff. I don't know if it has, I don't know if I'd be able to find as much in the vein of the commentary on, on these movies and stuff, uh, you know, slasher films and, and the feminist uh, viewpoint and stuff, but it's not like a slasher film. It's not like something that is like so terrible to watch, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't I don't know. All I can imagine is somebody somewhere thought, you know what, it's just not as good or we've already said the same thing and the movie didn't and we need to we need to shelve it. It is. I mean, like you can find it, as Andy said, I mean, you can find it somewhere, but it's it's harder to track down. I mean, it's not a great movie. No, when you're putting it in line with parts one and two, this one suddenly feels like, uh, okay, I, I appreciate that they still wanted to have a female director uh, part of this. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like they were really trying to have any of the sort of conversations that the previous two films were having. This one felt just like 
let's have a killer, and he's killing people at a slumber party. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of yep. it. So, uh, I, I guess, is is there a setup beyond what you just said? <laughs> let's have a killer There's yeah. a sleepover. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, let's, um, before we jump into that, we'll just say this film was rated R at the time of its rather limited release. Uh, and again, sex, nudity, uh, mild, but definitely violence and gore. A lot of that. All right, then. So is there a setup beyond what you said just a minute ago? I don't know. Slumber party killer. Weird guy wandering around the house. We, we've got all of the great slumber party massacre tropes. Well, that's the thing is like they're pulling a lot of similar tropes. Like, of course, it's a group of girls. They're going to have a slumber party and those parents are gone for the weekend. They've got a creepy neighbor. I think we have had. Uh, actually, we didn't have a creepy neighbor in the last film, but definitely this is a return to that creepy neighbor that we had in the in the first film. But, but this one, I suppose the big difference here is that. They set this one up a little more as a mystery as far as who is the driller killer in this particular story. It's kind of set up that it could be this weirdo, as he's credited, (laughs) that uh, is watching them at the beach. It could be the creepy neighbor who is watching them from uh, from across the street and weirdly is like in the house. Like there's, there's some strange things going on with that neighbor for sure that was but, uh, uh the uh, morgan the michael harris's character yeah who who's like oh i thought you were selling the house i uh, <laughs> thought it was an open house and i wanted you right. to give me a tour uh, like what really super creepy and is like has his telescope to watch their <laughs> house <laughs> and i mean luckily i guess because he is the one who actually you know calls the cops but still it's like Super creepy. And I guess that's an interesting element of the film that you've got the creepy weirdo who steals the address book and is stalking them. So that's creepy in and of itself. Like he comes over to the house and is watching them through the windows. You have the creepy neighbor who's watching them. And of course, then you have the killer who has, you know, psychological issues. And I guess that's what they're painting as to why he's doing the things he's doing. But I guess maybe if you can look at it this way, you know, Catherine Siren's screenplay, Sally Madison's direction. Maybe they're trying to say, just because this one guy is a killer doesn't mean there aren't other guys that women have to watch out for. That's sort of part of the the whole thing. Like, it doesn't matter if there's creepy neighbor, but there is a lot of peeping tomming going on in the whole series. And again, in the remake, like, there's just a lot of people peeking through windows. And there's there is some sort of statement in there, like about the nature of vulnerability that comes from being watched uh, without knowing that you're being watched. And the like the statement on perversion that that comes from that, like we make some assumptions about Morgan in particular. We make some assumptions like hell, he's called weirdo on the beach, right? Just because he's sitting on the beach watching people play volleyball. That's, that's not Morgan. Mor- no, 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 no. That's the- what I mean. Yeah, there are two, like two yeah. weirdos so far yeah. that I'm counting right. down. Morgan is the neighbor with the glasses, Michael yeah, Harris. Yeah. And then, okay, right. so we have weirdo on the beach. We have Michael Harris looking through windows. Like he is like the, the spectrum of people looking through windows 
is is wide in all of these movies. And uh, I I think that's a that's if there is a broader statement, it is it, it there's something on that, like the position we put ourselves in to feel protected in a home. Um, when we close and lock the doors, when we are objectively not, and and this these movies, I think are are they just lean in on the uh, the fear that comes from from that experience. Am I making too way too much out of this movie? Well, no, but I mean, I definitely think there's an element of that in horror movies in general, and oh, even, absolutely even thrillers, crime films. I mean, you know, of the era. You know, Michael Mann directed Manhunter, which is very much about a killer who's watching people uh, from the forest outside of the house. And then he sneaks into the house when he after he's like killed the dog and whatever and and kills the people in their sleep. Like there is this fear of being watched, of being out of control and not having any sense of control because somebody is out there uh, and is, um, you know, watching you and, you know, <laughs> There are there are things called blinds, and I guess more people may want to Nobody use them. Nobody uses blinds. But. <laughs> yeah, no blinds are blinds went out in ninety one. Um, so the the thing about uh, I, I think the thing about that though is that the fear comes from knowing that somebody else is being watched. That's why it's such an easy horror trope, is because we're all scared of it when we know it's happening. Right? There is a fear that comes with being watched and knowing somebody is is trying to violate sort of premises, but. It, the act of not knowing that's that that that's happening is what causes like the ignorance of it is what causes the surprise and the shock. And I think that's why well, it's such an easy trope. And it's why these movies hang so much on on that, because it's it's easy because there's not a whole lot of other stuff going on in the in the movie. Once you get beyond that, it's a drill. It's a drill that is inconsistently wielded across three movies, uh, nay, four movies uh, that, um, you know, is is scary a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, I it's interesting because our killer in this one, it is, as I was saying, it is set up as a mystery as to who is doing it. And so when you finally get the reveal, which I mean, it's not a huge surprise when it comes. Um, and I suppose we should have our spoiler horn uh, here just in case someone hasn't watched it since it is a little harder to uh, find. Although I will say uh, Stig in our chat room for our uh, members said that he found it on YouTube. So perhaps you can just watch the whole thing on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Regardless, <laughs> it is Ken who is the killer. And, um, you know, one of the boys that we've kind of seen with the girls uh, from the start, he's, he's you know, part of the group. And so that is something that is new, that is different. It's not an outsider coming in to be the killer it is somebody from within and in the in the story this particular killer is painted to have psychological damage from being abused by his uncle sexually abused by his uncle as a child and now uh, he has this trauma and his uncle had also worked for the police department and had recently passed away and it seems like yeah it seems right and it seems like the story is trying to make it like that death is kind of what pushed Ken to start doing what he's doing in the film. At least that's how I read it. I read it that way, too. It's not a strong connection to me, right? Like, it's, it, it is, they don't make a, maybe enough of a case that it was the trauma of being sexually abused and the death of his uncle by suicide that, that somehow created the, the sort of sociopathic storm that made Ken into a, uh, murderous 
sociopath himself, was somehow was the police officer somehow grooming Ken as a murderer? Was he a murderer himself? Like I, I like what was what was it that made that connection? I don't I don't quite I didn't quite get it. Other than this was the uh, well late eighties, early nineties. It was released nineteen ninety. I'm not sure when they were in production on this, but regardless, the time period. It very, it was very easy to just say, oh, let's just, let's just write off this guy's, uh, you know, killer tendencies as, uh, you know, sexual abuse as a child. Um, in particular, like by a male, like that seems to be mm-hmm. easy, kind of a trope of the era to use something like that to say, oh, well, surely something like that has to be so traumatic that would, it would push this person to kill. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of where we kind of where we go with that. Do you have any thoughts on the women in the movie? Did they did anybody stand out to you? I mean, we have <laughs> Jackie and Diane and Janine and Susie and Maria and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few. You get to the point where they actually launch into the official party of slumber and they begin dancing. And then it becomes the tropiest of tropey tropes, tropey tropes, because we have a, a a storm of all the things we've been talking about. There's the creepy neighbor with the telescope staring into the windows. There's the guys who are now coming together to go to the the slumber party. The girls have started dancing. They're encouraging each other to start dancing. And that will progress. And so we have this perfect storm of like eroticism, right? Like this, this sort of erotic behavior, exploring these erotic tendencies with these guys who are easily provoked and crazy weirdo neighbor. And it, and then what? And, and, and the weirdo and the weirdo, right? Yeah. So who much, so much does, is happening all at who once. Who eventually does break into the house. Like the, the, the weirdo actually climbs into the basement. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of strange stuff going on and a lot of people. And, you know, I, as far as our, the ladies themselves, I mean, I didn't find them incredibly effective. I mean, they were fine, but they kind of just, I don't know. None of them stood out. There was no Crystal Bernard in the scope of how they reacted and stuff. It it, it seemed so they lacked so much agency when it came time to the killer. Like when Ken comes into the house, like he had gone out because I think he was he said he was going to get his uncle or something, you know, and and um, and that's when he goes and is that when he goes and kills the pizza girl, pizza girl in the middle of the road? <laughs> like right in public like he kills the piece or he kills the token black guy who came over yeah and but anyway he opened they open the door they see that ken's there and so they go okay well it's safe we can open the door and ken is standing there with a drill takes down one of the guys and then the girls like they know he's in the house with a drill and they just are kind of like standing at the back door trying to get it open and like none of them are checking to make sure like is he approaching what what's he doing until he actually comes into the room behind them and says one of his cheesy lines uh, it's it's like they're just there's there was such little agency with them and it was kind of a a frustrating shift in the story 
or in the in the franchise to suddenly be in a film where I felt like now these women have no agency and it really is just let's just watch them get killed one by one sort of thing. And so, yeah, that was I ended up finding that uh, quite frustrating with this one. Yeah, for sure. It, this was this was a paint by numbers version, especially on the heels of the second movie, like the second movie, which was trying to do something a, a little bit more, a little bit different. And on the heels of the first movie, which kind of leans into the gender reversal sort of uh, uh, tropes, which was a movie that was ahead of its time. Those two movies are so much better in the context of this movie, which is, uh, I, I mean, you, you mentioned the token black guy. You could say it's the token everybody. Like, everybody is a token in this movie. Like, we've, we've just... Uh, we're just checking boxes. Yeah, it uh, it was kind of uh, kind of frustrating. And you know, Sally Madison as the director, this was her only directorial effort. Otherwise, she primarily produced a lot of fairly kind of low rent films. And I don't know. I'm guessing a lot of them might have been with with Corman, but none of them were things that stood out. And so I just I don't know. I felt like this was one of those sequels where people were like hey those other two were they made us some money let's just do a third one and so they came up with a plot trying to just do something that you know resembled the structure of it you've got a slumber party and you've got somebody with a drill who's going around killing people you've got a creepy neighbor like they like you said they're checking the boxes it's all the things that they need to have in there to make what they call a slumber party massacre film and that was this what do you know of Catherine Siren, though? I mean, she's she wrote it, and she's on deck to producing with Corman. Do you have a sense of her other work? No, I'm not really that familiar. I, I think that she largely was doing Corman stuff primarily. I know she, gosh, she just died last, uh, just this past Christmas season yeah. of cancer, which is Christmas which Eve. is sad, but yeah. She went from doing kind of low rent stuff with Corman to a lot of like family friendly TV movies, things like that. Yeah, I think some lifestyle, uh, lifestyle channel staple stuff. Lifetime? Uh, lifetime. Yeah, Lifetime. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And then th- she worked, she did stuff for like the Disney Channel and ABC Family and you know, a lot of those sorts of things. I don't know. It's a weird turn. Is that like just balancing the scales from this movie? Uh, well (laughs) like i'm gonna do a slumber party oh no now i have to do the prince and me an elephant adventure (laughs) or the christmas duet (laughs) it's like you know when we talked to steve minor on the speakeasy i mean he started in the friday the 13th franchise and house and then he went on to become the the main showrunner for uh i just blanked on the name of it what was the thing that um with fred savage the wonder years Siren also did Dead Space with Mark Singer and Brian Cranston. Do you ever see Dead Space? Deadly virus attacks the crew of a Saturn space station. Mark Singer from V. So anyway, that's so Catherine Siren. Yeah, I don't think she's anyone who I, I felt like this was not something that she was using like Amy Jones to kind of create a mark for herself so that she could go on to a bigger career. Uh, and same thing with Sally Madison. Both of them felt like, you know, they were probably working with Corman at the time, like getting their foot in the door in the industry. And he said, hey, I want to do another one of these movies. And they said, oh, OK, sure. Like, it just didn't feel like this was 
something that people were using as a calling card to move on to bigger and better things. That it does not. That it does not. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the the interesting shift in the second movie and how we were following the younger sister now years later as she was having her own slumber party, but how really that one was a psychological exploration of her dealing with the trauma that she had suffered in the first film. In the scope of film of series that are trilogies like this one is, do you feel like uh, like they missed the boat when they made this one and the only connective tissue is there's a killer with a drill attacking at a slumber party? Do you feel like we should have connective tissue if you're going to call it a series? <sighs> That's interesting. I It's interesting because, uh, you know, the what is the opposite of that? Like, what would it otherwise be? An anthology? Like some sort of a, a set of stories in a, in a collection? That that is certainly more what it feels like, although the first two movies play so nicely with each other because we do have the connection of the character, even if not the actor um, playing the younger sister. I think in, in this movie, it, it you know, what do we what is the connective tissue between this and the second movie? The fact that our our sort of Black Knight hero wears a leather jacket like Rockabilly Driller Killer, like I there is no there's no other connection beyond the uh, beyond the drill and the parties of slumber and some character names and again it's like are we meant to think that diane from the first movie is this diane or that jackie is the same jackie i don't think we're meant to think that it's just weird that they keep using the same names across the this series when it like I, we talked about this last time when theoretically the driller killer from the first one is the same as in the second one now he's haunting her dreams but why is he a rockabilly guy like there were so many weird things that kind of came up with that and other than valerie and courtney from the last film yes that was definitely connective tissue because the characters were the same but otherwise it's like i just don't get why they keep naming the characters the same names as if that's supposed to be in some capacity a form of the connective tissue like just because there's a diane and a jackie wouldn't they give diane and jackie something to do that actually you know slam that home for us uh wouldn't they have a mention man this feels so familiar why is this so familiar to me have i been at a slumber party wait a minute you guys um I feel like there there are only, you know, clearly six names from 1982 to 1990 <laughs> that they were able to use. And they ran out. They ran out yeah. of names. Uh, and, and it's possible that it was just the commonality of those names. Like, it could just be that, like, I, I have this in my head, this conversation with uh, uh, Catherine Siren is, is, oh, well, I went to baby names for those years. And, you know, proportionally, there would be those people at this party because that's how many common names there were. Did you know a Diane or a Jackie in your high school, like junior high, high school years? I don't think I knew either of those. I didn't know a Diane or a Jackie. I did know a Di- I knew a Diane, but she was in college. I did Diane too. Co- yes, we we knew, knew the same, same Diane. Diane. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Right. So that means there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Courtney. Did you know a Courtney yeah. in junior high or high school? No. I did not. Linda? Nope. No. But my, the, our librarian was Linda. <laughs> Linda the librarian. Uh, Trish? No. Kim, no. I mean, I, I, I say Patricia. this. There was I'm a Patricia. Sure, 
Well, I'm yeah. sure there were people named this when I was in school, just not. But in were my they our friends. age? Yeah, like would they have well, been, or, at or were parties? they my circle of friends? Like I don't know. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. No. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. So. Okay, Jackie. I didn't know. Did you know a Devon? Did not know a Devon. Lulu. No Lulu. <laughs> Weirdly, a... I. Oh, that that's because I was reading the actors' names. Uh, Sarah definitely knew. I knew like fifty Sarahs. There well, were a my lot sister of Sarahs. Sarah, so I, I know a sister. You I definitely knew, knew I've a known Sarah. a Sarah for a long time. Juliet. I knew a Juliet. Uh, nope. Did, did you know any detectives? <laughs> detective Davis. I didn't. I didn't I did know not have Janine. a Detective Davis in my life when I. Was, <laughs> I, I didn't know a Susie, J- Janine, Diane, Duncan. Uh, I did know a Morgan. Weird neighbor, but it was a, a female. Um, but did you know did, weirdo on beach? I did. I did know a lot of weirdos, but we had no beaches, <laughs> so it was just weirdo in the woods. Yeah, uh, I did know a Ken. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. So clearly, a lot of these names feel dated. They feel dated, and even for 1990, I feel like they they might be a little dated too. But it's for like, sure. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Because we're ostensibly, this is interesting, Andy, because the last, the first movie, 1982, yeah. right? 1982, about high school kids, we were, what, 10, 11, something like that? The, the next movie, 1980, what was it, 7? 7, 6, 87, seven. Yeah. 1987. Now we're, what, we're getting into late middle school freshmen? And then 1990, we're juniors, seniors in high school. Right. So this is the first time that this movie should feel like home to you and me. Right. Yeah. It doesn't. Well, <laughs> not other, OK, experience. other other than to some extent, seeing some of the fashion and, you know, we were talking about. Yeah, this, we we're talking about Please this a little pants. bit in our pre-show chat uh, for our members, you know, some of the kind of the fashion choices of the era and how like the any flashbacks we had from seeing some of this stuff. There's definitely a sense of the period in the film for sure but yeah none of it yeah i i don't feel like they were quite tapped into um the youth market quite as much as they might have thought they were yeah for sure they you know they, they made the movie for themselves it feels like well yeah they made it for Kinda. roger corman <laughs> they made it for roger corman he knew a lot of donnas he had a lot of donnas in his life one of the <laughs> I don't know the the maybe the cruel uh, we'll call it the cruel ironic kill of this movie is poor I don't even know what her what her name was is it Juliet uh Juliet goes and gets in the bathtub right immediately after she finds the corded vibrator and the killer comes in and drops the corded vibrator into the bathtub and electrocutes her yeah in silhouette um, okay so this there this film more than either of the others had a lot of kills that did not relate to drills truth yeah we we had a don't forget the the house for sale sign that's what i was gonna say the for sale sign through the chest (laughs) (laughs) we had for a token black guy Uh, Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. that was a pretty awful way to die we had let's see the um the the corded vibrator was next uh, was it a drill or the who got who got the chainsaw was that the pizza girl or was that someone in the house Tom, uh, Tom got the sledgehammer and then no, the no, chainsaw. Sledgehammer, or croquet mallet. It was a croquet mallet, right? It was a croquet mallet. I don't know. Oh no, it no, was they some hit, sort of hit, hammering they hit, device. They hit Ken with a croquet mallet. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah but he hit right. Ken. Hit Tom with a sledgehammer and then spliced into his legs with the chainsaw. And then he goes to the van to get the power drill and finds the bodies there. 
And that's that's right. I just got to say, there was a scene when somebody was trying to protect themselves from the drill, and they grab it with their hands. Oh no! Ah, yeah. that yeah. was that was honestly like I thought a great little moment of horror where you have mm-hmm. somebody who's so you know trying to stop this that they grab a moving drill. <laughs> their bare hands oh that was that was awful that was so awful that that uh that worked effectively for yeah that that did work there were a couple of them that really worked um oh and we had chekhov's uh harpoon in the basement (laughs) i like (laughs) a spear gun right a spear gun on the wall in the basement i said oh i can't wait for that to get used because i know somebody's gonna grab it and Somebody's that was really funny. That was funny. Because, of course, we have the basement, and that's where, at some point, I mean, we had our weirdo climb in through the basement window. I mean, he's he's a creep. He's watching them from, you know, he's kind of from the patio. I guess he's the one, remind me if I'm wrong, the one who, we see a point where they're on the patio, like they're they're barbecuing on the patio. He knocks the the barbecue over, and they have to go out and, like, pick everything up. And then at some point, he also kind of climbs down into the basement through an unlocked window. It's right after he drops the the address book and leaves it on the patio and they pick it up. Yeah, Right. And then we don't see him again until they're poking around in the basement and they open up, I don't know, like a, a freezer in the basement and they find his body down inside there. And he had been like drilled through the face or something. I can't remember exactly. But right. there are a lot of interesting kills throughout the film. And I liked that. Okay, that was something that I thought was unique with this film. They're going to do stuff that's not necessarily just with the drill. Well, and I couldn't tell. Speaking of the drill, I mean, we're trying to go for the uh, the driller killer vibe. Like, did you do you think there was an intent to that? Or was this more of an homage just because there were so many kills that didn't involve a drill like this was not this one felt much more like this this it. uh, what was, what's the movie uh, or not the the game that all the kids are playing where everything is sus and you have, you're the little red blobs going around the spaceship and yeah among us and uh, among us this feels like among us don't get alone with Ken right Ken <laughs> is the one his sus yeah and uh, the other movies were more were much more because the the killer is separate as a separate identity from the rest of everybody else like he's not one of them. Um, and so this movie, that is something that is different about this movie, right? Th- than the last two. Yeah. And I think that boils down to the fact that they play it up as a little more of a surprise as to yeah. who the killer is. They, they keep it from us. So we're like, is it the creepy weirdo? Cause it's not played up as if it's Ken. It really is until like right around minute 55 when the reveal happens that it's actually Ken with Tom. Uh, right. When he opens the door, and it's the moment when he opens the door because we because he had gone out. They There's a killer outside. Somebody's killing stuff. The token black guy's dead and they aren't sure somebody else gets it. And I can't remember who, but and he runs out to go. It's like, I, I got I can go get my uncle because the phone lines have been cut. They want to get in touch with the police. Oh, and this was was this. Yeah, no, this was the second film where we had the police come over and refuse to help because the women were so useless, right? Right. Yeah. But but the the reveal to us, the audience, that it's Ken, 
happens when Ken kills Tom. That's when he betrays Tom because he and Tom run out together and they run down the street to an abandoned construction zone, which has chainsaws lying around. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Right. So that's when we discover that Ken's the killer and Ken maintains his secret until later when the door opens and we have what I can only describe as the Muppets look of shock with the whole gang standing at the front door (laughs) and he comes in with the drill and a crazy look on his face. Yeah. That was exactly how that whole thing went where, yeah, you have him do like, do you, did we remember did it? We knew it was him when he was killing the pizza girl. Yeah. Oh, oh. I'm trying to remember if that was done in, in a way where we no, couldn't tell. No, no, we didn't, because, we didn't. Because then he hides her body in the van, and that's where we see him, like, looking at a picture of his uncle or something, right? Did we still know it was him? We must have. That's the thing I don't know. I thought we, I thought we saw that there was a child with the, with the uncle, and, but, but that it was still, his identity was still shrouded. Okay, I'm, am okay, I crazy yeah. here? No, and I then, think you're right. Because, because at the end, the picture is the callback when she finds the picture in his dead body's yeah. pocket in the, yeah, the yeah. of Ken's dead yeah. body. Right. So. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, it's. It, and besides, yeah. he goes to the van to find the bodies after yeah. he kills Tom. So we already know that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that he just leaves like 10 million candles lit. In a van. In a van. Well, and also, like, this was, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, he kills the pizza girl. It's the middle of the street. Like, he runs her down in the middle of the road with his uh, with his drill and kills her. And, I mean, he's just lucky that no one was looking out their windows or surprised at the screams and the noise before he went and got it, had a chance to hide her body. I mean, it it was surprising that they played it that way where he was... He he had no sense of caution. No, that's and that's I'm not fair. exactly sure if that's just because he had snapped by this point, or it's because it's a low budget movie and it didn't really matter where he was. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm scrubbing. I'm actually scrubbing through the movie right now because I'm I'm now I'm I'm wondering if my memory has gone sideways. Uh, on that pizza girl like what did we know so it's right after the for sale sign and he's wearing a mask and he undoes the light bulb yeah the mask was certainly a new thing for this one that's right but he's not in a mask very long and then they discover the mask yeah i guess that's i guess that's it yeah so that's why i think that's why we don't we don't know it's him until the reveal to tom that's the betrayal and that's an hour in. I mean, and that's, it's interesting. You know, it takes quite a while to get us to that point. Um, but, you know, in the realm of these movies, at least I guess that was something different. You know, we've had, in the first film, the kills started fairly quickly, and they start fairly quickly in this film. But in the first film, the killer was revealed, uh, or the killer was, uh, you know, very um, apparent right out of the gate. Like we always, always knew in that first film that it was Russ Thorne, the escaped yes. uh, killer who was actually the one killing everybody. And there was really no surprise at all in the second one. There was no kill for over an hour. And we just had a lot of very disturbing dreams from Courtney over the bulk of that first hour as she was like, you know, having all these terrible dreams until finally Russ Thorne shows up in real life. Yeah. And goes on a killing spree. And then, of course, the big reveal at the end of that one. So, um, yeah. So I guess, okay, that's what they're trying to do differently. They're giving us a mystery as to who is actually doing the killing for this one. Mm-hmm. And then, and because the first two kills happen when he's masked, he's wearing the, the face mask and the hoodie. 
like we we're supposed to be surprised too when it turns out that it was him all along yeah right were you surprised it doesn't build in an effective way where i was ever surprised yeah you know it always felt like oh well it's it's obviously going to be him because he is uh, there's something about him that's just a little off and they they seem to be designing it where it's going to be the guy who's the jock that that she's in love with it it just feels like it's going to play that way you know as opposed to the it doesn't make sense to be the weirdo you know no it wouldn't have been the weirdo but would it have been her boyfriend like that is another one of those twists the the leather jacket wearing dark haired uh guy earringed guy like he's the rebel maybe he was supposed to be the one you know but he ends up being vastly more helpful but did were you ever snookered into thinking that it wasn't Ken? no yeah it just i i don't feel like the team behind this film built it in any way and and same thing for britain fry who plays ken like it never felt like they were building it up to actually give us a surprise when the reveal happened it all was like oh yeah of course it was him like it just didn't see i don't know and i guess is that frustrating like should they have done that like would that have at least made it more interesting if we actually had red herrings and we're like oh it was ken all along yeah, I, that's kind of where I am. It, it, and I think I, I feel like they tried more uh, to to actually obscure who the killer was in this movie than they succeeded in doing so. Right. I, it it doesn't feel to me like they just were completely obtuse about it. I feel like they were they, they gave it a shot doing it through character and performance. And I just I never bought it. No, yeah, I never did. And same thing, like the whole thing with the uncle, like we get we're there are hints that are dropped throughout this. Like we have the two cops, like there's a point where we cut to the police station and they're having a conversation about this, you know, this former, I can't remember what he was, deputy or whoever he was who had killed himself. And they were talking about that and stuff. And it's like, are we meant to, is there some connection? Like what's the connective tissue? Like there were moments that it felt like they were trying to build some connective tissue and it really was only when Ken was in the van and he was having his little flashbacks to, you know, Uncle Billy, where it kind of just it became really obvious. But it's like, why was he a cop? Like, what was the what was the whole connection there? And and so, I don't know, it felt like they were trying to put stuff in here to make it, a, you know, give it a, a bigger and stronger story. But none of it felt as effective as they wanted it to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it just, it, and this is the problem that that struck me with that. Are there like so? Are there those sociopath backstories that are that beg too much of the audience? Like when you just say, "Oh, he escaped from a mental institution," we as watchers of these kinds of of you know slasher movies have a mental model for what that's like, right? We don't need to ask too many questions, and the filmmakers don't need to dive too deeply on that backstory because we have that mental model. Sure. 1990, you say, oh, this guy was sexually abused by his uncle, the cop who killed himself. For me, that begs more exploration of how that how that person came to be. Right. This is a show that or this is the Dexter trope where they have many seasons to explore this character and how he is. He's so um, broken and has to be trained by his cop to only kill the bad guys and that that whole thing. Like, that's an interesting thing. And maybe I expect too much because they gave me just a just a nudge too much. And just making this a slasher movie misses 
so much of of you know what the complexity of this character could have been this movie like the idea behind this movie is sort of punching above its class and what was delivered was exactly what you know what it was well but i mean that's kind of what i was saying earlier like it feels like they were using tropes of the era and that feels like you know sexual trauma as a child that's going to lead to serial killer like yeah. it just felt so tropey to just put it in that way and to have that those few brief scenes that we have of Ken thinking about Uncle Billy as all they need to tell us to say, oh, yeah, he is this way because of what happened to him as a kid. And now his uncle killed himself. And so now Ken has snapped and he's going to go around killing a bunch of people like it just it seems like, I don't know. Roger Corman shorthand to just come up with some psychological damage like that that's just going to give us what we need to write it off. And I mean, to that end, like we've said, it's more than what we got in the first or second film, but it doesn't make it good. Right. <laughs> right. It doesn't make it good. Yeah. And this was like a year before The Silence of the Lambs comes out, which is, um, you know, again, going back to uh, Thomas Harris, I, you know, I already mentioned Manhunter here, but here we have uh, another book of his that is dealing with a a serial killer and psychological complexities in that story abound, and it makes for a much more compelling character as far as what we have in James Gum, as opposed to what we end up getting here. But again, it feels like what we're probably going to be getting from uh, New Concord with uh, Corman and team. Yeah, for sure. Anything else hot on this one for you? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I, I just, I, I, there were moments where I was, I felt like, okay, at least they're doing some things. Like there were, uh, you know, a lot of other weapons other than drills used, uh, a f surprisingly fun use of bleach when they throw it in his face. And, and then we have him kind of stumbling a lot around, um, uh, you know, I mean, I could see, okay, they're trying to do something interesting with the camera here as far as kind of giving it that blurry look like he can't quite figure out where he's going and stuff. And so there were moments, but on the whole, it just of the three, it's like I kind of can see why this one is often left by the wayside when it comes to uh, releases. Yeah. There is that one bit when after the bleach, you reminded me when he goes blind, right? He can't see, but he can apparently still see light. And so he starts using the drill to swing at all the lights and, and make it dark for everybody. And I, it, you know, I, it, production shortcuts, right? He knocks down a lamp in the living room and all of the wall sconces turn off. Like the, <laughs> all the lights go off when he hits one lamp. And I always I thought that was that was a funny, yeah, <laughs> a funny shortcut. Exactly. Uh, it is funny. All right. Well, um, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Uh, so... 
I feel like um, sequels and remakes kind of on the bubble. Yeah, and and we've talked about a lot of this. There's that whole massacre franchise. There was the three uh, Slumber Party Massacre films. There were the three Sorority House Massacre films, and then the two Cheerleader Massacre Massacre films. Plus your favorite Sharkensaw Women's Prison Massacre. My rental is running out of time. I, I need to get that yeah, watched. Yeah, you got to watch that. Uh, plus, as we said, the Sorority House Massacre series that Norman Reedus is apparently developing. Plus, we have the Slumber Party Massacre 2021 film, which we're actually going to be talking about for our members in our February member bonus episode. So, members, you can look forward to that. Uh, and if the rest of you are interested, consider becoming a member so you can hear that one. It should be a fun conversation. And, um, you know, I know this is a... A series of films, like supposedly there's still another Sorority House Massacre film that's yet to come out. Like, I think people are, they've latched onto these as kind of a fun type of genre to play around in. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm curious to see if more of these get made. I wouldn't be surprised because it's just one of those things where... I think it allows for some fun, especially when you look at what people were doing like Amy Jones and Deborah Brock in the first two, like when you can play around with that in some capacity. And, and to that extent, Danishka Esterhazy does in the, in the 2021 remake, like there's opportunities to play around with these in fun ways and still make them work as genre films. Yeah, for sure. How did it do at the box office? Well, Madison had less money than Brock, but more money than Jones. She was working a $350,000 or $815,000 in today's money. The movie opened September 7th, 1990 on a weekend that was largely clear, though it wasn't exactly something that was going to crack, crack the top 10. This ended up earning $1.2 million or almost $2.8 million in today's dollars. Again, not as successful as its predecessor, but still in the black with an adjusted profit per finished minute. Of twenty two point seven thousand dollars. All right. Well, made some money. There it is. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm uh, glad we talked about it. I like that we talked about all all of these movies, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this other than remake in twenty twenty one, Andy. I think you buried the lead on that one. I cannot wait to have that conversation with you, and I think our members are going to really enjoy listening to that episode. Oh my goodness. Yeah. All right. Well, we will be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our next series, Danny Boyle's Train Spot. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. You're a quiet, sensitive type. A little bit crazy, a little bit bad. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. Only to get my foot in the door. What exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? And I want pleasure. Like, my pleasure in other people's pleasure. He's always been lacking in moral fiber. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. That's hardly a substitute. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sight? Clear enough, Mitch Moneypenny. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. The man is a psycho, man. He's a mate. So what can you do? What are you two talking about? Football! What are you talking about? Shopping! 
What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. Letterboxd. Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. That's our favorite social media network for movie lovers. That's where we put our uh, our film diaries, movies we watched, reviews, ratings, hearts, all of the things are there. Uh, and if you fall in love with it, like we have, you can uh, upgrade your membership, get rid of ads, and support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this thing. Uh, com slash letterbox will whisk you over to a checkout page over at Letterbox where you can upgrade to pro or patron and get 20% off that upgrade. Works for renewals as well. Andy, where do you put this movie? I gave both of the previous films three stars and a heart. They're not great, but they certainly are fun and easy watches. This one, I mean, it still is giving me some of the genre elements. It's just nowhere near as good or as clever as either of those first two. I feel like, um, gosh, I, I'm torn between one and a half and two stars. I feel like I'm just going to land on two stars, no heart. I am going to be uh, no heart as well, but I'm going to fall from there. I'm going to give it a one star. I, I thought I didn't think this movie was delivering a whole lot. And um, I'm really OK. Never revisiting this one. Yeah, that, that'll put it at one and a half stars with no heart over in our Letterboxd account. Uh, you can find that at letterboxcom slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we have reviewed there over the years. And as Pete said, don't forget to visit the slash letterboxd and you can get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. Don't forget, we also have a membership for our show at thenextreel.com slash membership. You can learn about that. You can get all your episodes early. You can get uh, pre-show and post-show chats and a bunch of bonus episodes, monthly member bonus episodes and all sorts of other things. So learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Slumber Party Massacre 3? We would love to hear your thoughts and the whole franchise, actually. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about them this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. This is kind of a hard one to find a good review on. I mean, not a good... I just mean if I were rating reviews. A lot of people had a lot to say. <laughs> that's that's a sad sign when suddenly... Okay, are you going to start <laughs> rating reviews? This was a five-star review. I mean, I'm giving this five stars. But it's only three stars. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's terrible. Uh, where'd you go? I, I went right where I am. Two stars. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Two stars by Maskell, who says, This movie just frustrates me. The killer is blinded at one point and 
distracted by other things, ugh, by the way, and the three other girls just stand there and watch, I guess? No, that's okay. Just let him molest your friend and then murder her with a drill, and you just stand there. Did I mention the dude was blind? I pretty much wanted everyone to die at that point. Shame, too, because this was a fairly fun slasher up until near the end when everyone just went stupid. I mean, even dumber than the usual slasher character stupid. Yeah, this is to my point. The girls just stand there a lot. I think two stars is too generous for that review. Those don't align to me. That seems like a half-star review, which is where I went with John Mayer's review. John Mayer. says, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Not related. Okay, I remember seeing this one before, at least, and there's only one criticism you really need. I've seen people put down Jason Voorhees with less effing effort than it takes these girls to kill this mother effer, and he's a dipshit ascot-wearing yuppie prick. Plot holes the size of the Grand Canyon, I tell you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's spelled differently. That's how I know it's not the same mayor. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, thanks, Letterbox. You've been really great. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>